Blog Talk Radio. again today. Yes, today we're going to have another very, very interesting show. We are going to be convening a roundtable on integral spirituality. We're going to be culling from the work of Ken Wilber, of the work of Spiral Dynamics, Claire Graves, and uh, Don Beck, who we had on A Better World Television some years back, and the personal experiences of the gentleman that will be on the roundtable with me today, Doug King and Nomi Naim, both of whom gathered with me uh, and a lot of other of our friends and colleagues at the Spiritual Summit for Social Change this past Saturday at the uh, Second Presbyterian Church on the Upper West Side of New York City, where a really wonderful group of people, deep thinkers and deeply spiritual, committed people, uh, committed to the world and the world of change, of helping us all evolve as a humanity, as a species, really, uh, came together to dialogue, to have roundtables, to help move the conversation forward regarding who we are at this point in time on our beautiful planet and what we can do with our hearts, minds, and souls united in interesting, creative ways to uh, move things out of this old dinosaur-like paradigm in which we find ourselves currently into another one that's a little more sparkly, a little bit more fun, more respectful of Earth as a sacred being, and, you know, the kinds of subjects that we talk about on A Better World with great regularity. So... Uh, stay tuned. I'm sure you will enjoy what's going on today, as I know you do usually, and this will be a continuation of the usual themes and values that we like to offer here at A Better World. So, with that said, I would like to introduce our guests, at least in brief, so you'll be able to tune in and uh, be part of the fun with us. Uh, our first guest is Doug King from Atlanta, who worked with his father, Max King, for some years developing Presence International, which is a leading and growing network to engage emergent, integral, and interspiritual organizations and idea leaders in shared goals for the common good. 
Sound familiar? You bet. It weaves together the work of spiral dynamics and integral thinking and theology into its framework. Doug is also uh, on the advisory board of Forum 21, United Nations NGO, and is on the board of directors of the Reciprocity Foundation here in New York City, a nonprofit organization working with inner city youth. Doug was formerly the president of a technology company in Atlanta for a couple of decades before uh, beginning Presence International. Nomi Naim is a senior librarian at Brooklyn Public Library, where he has been facilitating a philosophy discussion group for over 10 years. With a bachelor's in mechanical engineering and master's in information studies, Nomi is currently writing a thesis for a master's in liberal studies at the Graduate Center of New York here in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, Nomi has also completed the Integral Mentoring Program at the One Spirit Alliance. So uh, it proves to be a really interesting couple of colleagues that are joining me today. Hello, Doug. Hello, Nomi. Welcome to A Better World. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Mitchell. Thank you for hosting. So glad. You know, it's interesting being welcomed to something called A Better World, isn't it? You think that maybe you have, like, uh, reached heaven, you know? <laughs> Welcome to a better world. <laughs> you know? Yes, I like that, heaven on earth. You know, exactly. That's the name of the workshops that I'm actually putting on. Heaven on <laughs> Earth Workshop, sponsored by a better world. I mean, come on. How do you go wrong with that, right? Absolutely. So, listen, to begin this roundtable, which I'm very pleased and honored to have you both with me today. Uh, I would like to first turn to you, Doug, and ask you how it is that you entered this uh, whole realm of spiral dynamics and integral thinking, because your own background is very interesting, because born in West Virginia, your first encounter with religion was fundamentalist in nature. And it looks now that you have uh, virtually come uh, completed an arc, no pun yes. intended. Um, <laughs> but uh, you've come a long way from Noah. <laughs> you see how the subconscious it. works when you're on a better world. It's a beautiful symbol. <laughs> thank you, thank you. So it would be really interesting for our audience to hear how someone with what was your background has come to if I may say, a much more expanded and more elevated perspective. You've gained altitude on what was your religion of birth. And now, in a sense, what I've understood from you is you've come to be able to appreciate it on a whole other level, both its strengths as well as its weaknesses, its, its limitations. So if you would do that and then know me uh, to follow, I would love for you to do same. Absolutely. Is that good? Beautiful. Yes, so please. Okay, well, again, thank you very much, Mitchell, and it is a pleasure to be here. And all of us are a product, of course, of 
the way we were raised and the different events that happen in our lives. And, and the many people I talk with, n- none of us can really explain why certain things seem to have been in us from the time of our youth or why we observe things in our youth that later on bloomed, blossomed, and led us down roads and paths quite different from where we started. And in my case, yes, I started in a fundamentalist um, Christian uh, group, but the benefits of that were that I became very, very familiar with uh, a narrative. And narrative is, for me, uh, something that goes back to the earliest of times. Uh, Even before writing, tribes had storytellers. And so it it wasn't that I didn't have a narrative. It was a question of how that narrative changed in my life. And really, I have to say that, that my dad had a huge role in my life because he grew up in West Virginia on a farm and went to small country churches that were extremely fundamentalist, but he could not understand as he walked through the fields. Were they Baptist? Oh, they were of all kinds, Baptist. um, We were um, Church of Christ. There were Disciples of Christ, Christian Church. um, and, And what would happen is they would work in the fields together during the week, but then they would go to different churches and hear messages that the others were going to be lost. And he couldn't understand how they, there could be oneness during the week in everyday life and that God would somehow or another see fit that some of them were okay and some of them weren't. So that was a big turning factor in his life, which which led him to begin to question that narrative and to ask in his own mind if there might not be different ways to interpret the same narrative look at the same material, but interpret it in a different way. And then that's what he began to do. And then as I sat at his feet, he began to pass those things on to me. So the ones that would not be moving on in the Christian perspective, this Christian perspective, would not be the souls that get saved. And that would be because they did not find themselves in Christ. Is that the fundamental notion yes yes absolutely and you know this is one of the things about the evolution of consciousness it starts in history uh when you look at at the development of consciousness in history it starts as a very tribal particularistic idea of identity uh tribes really saw their identity as uh restrained constrained to their tribe you you take that over to religion and then religions saw themselves as a tribe and when you come in contact or encounter other tribes, that that brings about a a warrior, if you will, uh, stage in history, and that's where conflicts start to happen, and uh, we defend the truth, we fight in the name of God, and those kinds of things, and that for us became an unworkable, and it is the unworkable that evolution will say causes people to, to begin to look at other solutions, other options. Right. In other words, necessity is the mother of invention. Yes. Perhaps that's another way of framing the similar idea. It was, and my dad was courageous enough not to fear the uh, group pressure, and he wasn't afraid afraid to be ostracized, which he was. Uh, You know, there are many terms for that in religion. You can be excommunicated, you can be disfellowshipped, you can uh, be cut off in many different ways as a way of trying to control people and keep them inside the boundary-driven uh, belief system, uh, but he would not, um, you know, submit to that. And he was willing to accept whatever the consequences of that were. And he passed that along to all of us, my brothers and I, that the number one obligation you have is to pursue what you intuitively believe to be the truth, no matter what the consequences are. That's very unusual in this society. Yeah. Very unusual. Yeah. 
So then what happened to you having, you know, imbibed the Kool-Aid, you know, right. the original <laughs> teachings, the right. original drinks of the church? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then with your father's influence that began to expand that perspective, that paradigm, you then went even further, as I understand. Yes. Could you just describe that transition? Absolutely. Transformation. And transformation is a key word there because what I was beginning to see when I encountered the writings of people like Don Beck and Spiral Dynamics, which is a model that shows how history is developmental, like childhood is developmental. We we accept that. I mean, we all know that there's developmental psychology for kids and that kids can, can grasp certain concepts at certain ages at 5, 7, 10, and so forth. We can grab grasp more than we could at earlier ages. So these models are really teaching that societies and cultures are the same way, that as we have grown as human cultures and societies since the beginning of of, uh, the dawn of humanity, that we're able to raise in our levels and stages of consciousness, and that is not to denigrate the previous levels and stages of consciousness, but rather to say that we learn from those and we include the healthy parts of them, but then we're also able to transcend. And the transcendent part of that allowed me to relook at that at the whole biblical narrative and to ask the question, were we was the was the purpose of the biblical narrative that the world end up with two major religions, or was the purpose of the biblical narrative a developmental history, which, which in, in essence, Mitchell, would end up being the history of the evolution of spiritual consciousness, that rather than ending up in, in a earlier consciousness, which is boundary-driven, form-driven, and particularistic, that we actually then take that, that consciousness, but we move into that which is not boundary-driven. And so that led me to understand that both Moses and Jesus were pointing away from themselves as a religion and toward a universal spiritual identity of all human beings. Oh, that is such a radically different interpretation that I very much appreciate. And uh, I think that it really hits a high note of truth. That's looking at, you know, what Jung would often refer to as the archetypal nature of our mythic representatives over time. Absolutely, and the beauty of that, and that's a wonderful point you make here, Mitchell, because those archetypes you see, they they relate, Moses can relate to a period of time within his culture uh, when you have the prophets and these other people that are speaking in, in, in 300, 400, 500 B.C., then you're moving along in a developmental way, not to say that you're, again, anything wrong with Moses, nor is there anything to say there's anything wrong with Jesus. It's just that the point was neither Moses nor Jesus. The point was spirituality itself. And they were showing how developmentally it was evolving on on the planet into a universal understanding of identity. And that means that we're able to tear down those barriers and remove the boundaries that separate us as human beings. And then having done that, look out. Uh, It will be amazing, you know, as we grow in that consciousness to see what we can do as a human family. Beautiful, beautiful. It's a really fine way of putting it. I'm, I'm reminded of a few things here, Doug and Nomi, which are... You know, what is the old story of um, uh, new wine in an old old bottle 
and it needs you know, a new container, and even the notion of a container itself. And boundaries have power. Limits have power. They can also have the shadow side of themselves and be too delimiting and therefore divisive. So this is what I'm hearing from you, Doug. You know, it helps to bring the shadow forward, and it also shows the open sky, if you will, that yes. notion. You know? Yes, yes, and so and so it's not that we that we say there are no longer any boundaries or that nothing is boundary driven. It's it's what we're saying is is that our consciousness has evolved to understand that identity is spirituality itself, and that is what is without boundary. Now, all of us as spiritual beings. We'll use boundaries to set up laws. You can only drive 55 miles an hour. You can't steal from other people. You can't do these things. That means that we're using those things to have a collective society that can function. However, I don't use boundaries or law in order to determine whether I'm obedient, disobedient, and therefore I am saved or lost. That's the difference in the way boundary becomes used when you move into integral consciousness. Yeah, exactly. Or to separate you from other people yes. because your boundary is called Christianity and this one is called Judaism and this is called Islam and this is called whatever. And it's just uh, <laughs> it becomes a real mess, which, of course, is what yes. we have today. As we yes. look around, we see yes. a devolution, actually. We'll get to yes. that later. Yes. Doug, thank you very much for laying that out as you did. Very, very sure. useful and enlightening, frankly. Nomi Naim, my dear friend, I so appreciate your input this past weekend and uh, where you have traveled and all of your work in the integral world and uh, the the kind of evolution you both represent and uh, speak of when you t when you teach. Teach us. <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Mitchell. It has been such a joy and a blessing that you are my friend because uh, I think uh, one of the greatest blessings has been that you connected me to some of my greatest friends in New York. And, uh, you were just saying that to me, Nomi, after all of these years as you came into our studio. <laughs> well, maybe it was the right time, you know? <laughs> That's so interesting, yeah. Yeah, so it's a great question. And uh, what has inspired me is that, you know, very early on you were doing what people usually do later in life. And I think uh, uh, I was interested in how you, your journey began, and I wanted to learn from you. So... I would like to begin my, uh, you know, story. In, in, I was born in Pakistan, and I uh, grew up in a household which was, uh, uh, you know, mildly religious, uh, but I did learn the Islamic and the Quranic principles early on, but I also went to a school where I was exposed to uh, learning the English language, which was also a great uh, blessing. And I was, uh, uh, while I was doing my studies, I discovered a, a book, uh, called Story of Philosophy by Rachel Land. And I think that was a pivot in my development. And then once I had read the book, uh, a very different universe opened up. And, and how old were you? At that time, I think I had started college. Uh, so I must have been 15, 17. Um, so, but ever since then, I think I've been pondering about 
lifetime just to read all of his writing, let alone, <laughs> you know, just for that. Yes. Could you know me, uh, to bear down to some more particulars, uh, describe how the integral perspective has directly influenced your thinking about, in particular, let's talk about your religion of birth, Islam. because we have a sort of a, a weave of the work of Spiral Dynamics, which is a developmental sociology and psychology perspective. And then you've got the integral way of thinking as well, completely complementary, but with its own distinct, its own distinctions. Absolutely. Right? So you've got these two things going on. Then myself, essentially, with my training in psychology, think about and look at this notion of human typology. And so, on the one hand, Islam and every other religion has its um, 
aggressive, violent components. It also has its stellar components, like you mentioned, Hafiz, Rumi, Kabir. So in each of these Abrahamic religions, and not to limit our conversation, by the way, to that at all, but just for the moment, uh, we see that we have that entire... So, in other words, it's not a religion that's defining the people, though it does define them to some extent and create some boundaries. The question of human behavior goes far beyond the boundaries of a given religion. So that's where we enter the domain of perhaps human typology, human evolution, and we could look at the memes in spiral dynamics as well, but we see that all of them are actually existing simultaneously in a given religion, in a given geographical context. Mm-hmm. Doug, could you speak to that for a moment? And yes. Now I, I just want to open this up. Thank you, Nomi, so much for sharing your the details of your past and perspective and how it got to be where it is, at least in in part. Yeah. Yeah, I think what we're what we're beginning to realize is the conversations that I'm now having all over the world, beginning to realize that these um, universal principles you speak of that belong to the human family are yes. not Christian or Hindu or or Buddhist. They're universal. So, for example, if I, uh, we're in the uh, waiting room, Danae and I are in the waiting room waiting to hear about uh, the birth of our. Uh, first grandchild three years ago, the nurse did not run in the wait into the waiting room and yell out, "It's a Christian." Uh, so, 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 so what? What we're realizing is is that within all of us, you know, crying the same tears, laughing the same laughter, uh, that within all of us there is a commonality. Now, now we have a tendency to separate that. Re- religion has a tendency to separate that from what it calls spirituality, whereas the more you go integral, you realize that laughter and tears and all those things, they are a they are spirituality itself, mm-hmm. and that we are all as human beings made up of all the components that have ever been uh, from the beginning of our society. So there's an archaic uh, that starts humanity. Well, I still have the archaic need to survive, to eat, uh, uh, and so forth, to keep my biology going. There's the tribal. Well, I'm still tribal. I have have a family. The difference is, is when I enter into integral, I, I then expand that to the human family. Uh, there's the warrior. The warrior doesn't mean I have to fight, but it but it may mean in transformed that I have courage, that I have great courage, and I stand for that, which I believe is on behalf of others. So I can take all the levels. What we call the spiritual warrior. Absolutely. And so I can take all those levels. They're all in me. I, I am not. I have not because I've gone through those levels or societies have gone. I'm not disembodied from them or disassociated from them. They just are transformed when I enter into an integral way of seeing, so that I so that I look at them in a healthy versus unhealthy way. But it is to your point common among all humans, whether they belong to a religion or don't belong to a religion, and that's why I believe that the biblical narrative and the teachings of Moses and Jesus are actually very restricted the way they are being presented today because they are particularistic to only certain groups, whereas when we look at them transformed, they are universal to all. Yes, very true. Well, the missionaries of uh, Christianity certainly try to make it that everyone will be part of that tribe, 
<laughs> yes, yeah. sure. Exactly. And that history is 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 the the what we would say the unhealthy uh, yeah. side of that. When you look at colonialism and the results of of uh, you know the things that have happened. Now, the other side of that is that because religion is so powerful, people are doing that because they actually believe that's what God wants them to do. So on the other side of that, even those that I know that are very fundamentalist and who think that I'm very much the heretic apostate. They do that because they have integrity, actually. They actually are doing what they believe. They actually believe that's what is yeah. the right thing to do. So so Nomi and oh, I yeah. are trying to contribute to evolving, you know, in any way we can, to helping people to evolve or to think about something that could be a better way, in essence. Mm-hmm. Yes. And when you look at the ethnocentric dimension of uh, the three great religions, uh, you will realize that uh, there is a specific uh, meaning system in all three great religions, which is repeated in that particular culture. And once once that repetition happens and it is reinforced by the institutions, by the elders, the children imbibe a cognitive unconscious. And that is a very powerful structure. And until and unless something new is discovered, uh, it is very difficult to change the unconscious that is existing in, in, you know, 70% of the world population right now. And there is a correlation between ethnocentricity and how much our species spends on uh, military. There is, you know, look at the national expenditure on armaments, and this is the ethnocentric level which drives that. So it's, it's good to see the correlation between what is going on in the minds of the people, what is the developmental level of the ideas that they are learning, and how it is being transmitted into everyday choices and how power works. So I think having a holistic analysis, which Silver would call all quadrant, because you know there is the uh, institutional element, there is the collective consciousness element, there is the individual growth element, and there are things that you can actually observe and look, the inner and outer of the individual and the collective. So these four quadrants are interacting all the time and creating any particular reality at any point in time. So that becomes a very universal way of looking at culture. Yes, beautiful. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Want to let everybody know that you are listening to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. We're on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, and uh, we love that you listen and uh, be part of our roundtables and conversations and all of it every single week. It's really a beautiful gift to us, and this is why I do what I do. It's to engage you and to help to educate, inspire, elevate, and maybe even motivate to your participating in the creation of a better world as you see it. Uh, Just to remind you, our website is www.abetterworld.tv, and if you do not yet get that newsletter, do not let another one slip away. They're every single week. They're for free. And join in and become part of A Better World's community. We just love to have all of you. And we have an international audience. So anywhere from and anytime, you are all welcome to our shows. And they're all listed in archive as well. Just to remind you uh, that we are on television in New York City every Monday night at 7 p.m. And our other radio show has just gotten shifted as of today to Tuesdays at 3 p.m., which is uh, Progressive Film Hour with Mitchell Rabin, where we look at uh, 
different progressive, socially-minded films, often environmental, any film that is seeking to make a difference by educating people with alternative news that we do not get in our standard mainstream media. We are here to help to present so we can all learn things we need to learn. So today we are engaged in a roundtable discussion on integral spirituality. And it's taking some really interesting turns and twists with Doug King, who is here from Atlanta in our studio, and Nomi Naim, who is here from Brooklyn in our studio. And we're just welcoming you both so much to A Better World. It's such a pleasure to have you. I'd like to just pick up on some kind of historical point that I don't think is made that often. It's not an integral point as such, but it is an interesting point from my point of view, from the point of view of, you could say, the anthropology of religion. Uh, Religion is, after all, an institution, the way we have the Abrahamic religions, where there is a temple and there or there is a church or there is a synagogue or there is a mosque there is a there is a structure and people then collect money to make sure this structure is properly swept and kept clean and has chairs and it's an operational institution is that correct that's correct so i want to just contradistinct that distinguish it from religions closer, what we refer to as religions, of the East. Interesting. There we have what's called the Hindu. There we have what is called the Buddhist. There we have what is called the Confucianist. There we have what is called the Taoist and the Shintoist, and more. But those are the Jainist. A lot of these, while there may be temples around, I want to just ask you both something that I have been toying with for a long time, which is this comment. They're actually not religions at all. They're ways of life. They are lifestyles. And it's my understanding, and Nomi, perhaps you can correct me if this doesn't accord with yours, that what became known as Hinduism became an ism because the invasion of the Muslims into India basically said an ultimatum that G.W. Bush said uh, just about eight, ten years ago, you're either with us or you're against us. You're one of us or you ain't, and, um, in his text and accent. But, you know, indeed, I'm saying that many hundreds of years ago, a similar kind of phenomenon, headset, entered there too. So people had to identify themselves as a religion to deal with an invading, let's call it that, an invading religious group, in this case, Muslims, into India, where people were worshipping as they saw fit. They had thousands of gods in their pantheon. No big deal. They lived their lives, you know, doing pujas and the like, day in, day out. That's the way they lived. That was their lifestyle. Yes, they had some priests. But from the point of view of an institutional religion as we have in the West, I don't think it really made it. Buddhism, a subset of, you could say, a child 
of Hinduism is not really, later on I would say it became a religion because people wanted those things that are institutional like rites of passage, ritual, ceremonies that accompany those highly important uh, rites of passage in life, birth, marriage, these days divorce, um, death. There needed to be some honoring, some formalized honoring. That's what happened in Taoism in China. Taoism was people sitting around in nature, mimicking nature. It's really uh, one of the first forms of biomimicry, of of following the movements of animals and finding that they were circulating their own energy more powerfully as a result of mimicking, you know, and sitting deep in meditation allowed them to see into their subtle energy fields and organs even. A fascinating thing. If anything, you could look at uh, the original Taoist and the original Hindu yogis and think that this is really more of a science, a science of physiology, a science of biology, but without our modern microscopes and scientific methodology, etc. Taoism then became known as a religion because the other institutions needed to categorize it in some way, and because they needed priests. The people called for priests to help facilitate and administrate those rites of passage I mentioned before. So I, I just wanted to lay that out. It's not as such an integral point, but it's an, I, think, I think historically it's an interesting point to make, to make distinctions between the way we think in groups, and distinct from, as I said, these three main religions we have more or less in the West. Yeah, I'll weigh in on that a little bit from my uh, perspective, again, coming out of a Does Western... Does that make sense to you, that laying it out of the, the yes. thought? Yes, it, it, it does, uh, and I've given that a lot of thought. I mean, the, obviously, the... Uh, approach to spirituality in the East versus the approach to spirituality in the West are two different things. And in fact, um, as I've kind of observed this, this is kind of off the cuff, it seems to me that those in the East began with spirituality itself as the discovery uh, point from day one, whereas in the West you had a developmental uh, framework and and the East doesn't really get into the developmental framework so much. It just starts with spirituality itself and what is the nature of existence? What is the nature of being? What is the nature of uh, spirituality and that which is? It starts there. Whereas when you when you look at the Western uh, religion and uh, you you come out of the giving of commandments. That's where it starts, and so it's very boundary driven. Those commandments then, and that law that is necessary for the judication of those commandments and those boundaries to see whether they're obeyed, disobeyed, whether one is clean, unclean, faithful, unfaithful, that resulted in what you mentioned before, an external manifestation and architecture such as a temple. And in the early days, that, that consciousness, what it manifested was a temple with a holy place and a holy of holies and a curtain, and God was in the holy of holies, and God was separate. 
So here we see in those earlier developmental stages something completely different than an Eastern approach, which starts out with spirituality itself is, is this thing in which we exist. And now what is the nature of that? And, and that, what is that impact on us in nature? As we move further into Jesus, then Jesus begins to talk about being transformed into a new heaven and earth which now, finally, in the Western culture, was giving opportunity for a discussion about something that is akin to spirituality itself, as discussed in the Eastern side. But in my opinion, because those teachings were received 2,000 years ago, they were received in the West under a traditional consciousness mind frame that basically took those teachings and rather moving into that spiritual space that the Eastern religions had been investigating all along, they just made Jesus another form. They made Jesus another religion. And they never really moved into that intended spirituality itself space that Jesus pointed to. And so it seems to me that now because we have an understanding of developmental history through spiral dynamics and other things, that we can now really truly understand higher levels of Jesus that were not heretofore in the West have not yet been fully appreciated and understood. That that would be my my take on what kind of what you're laying out there, Mitchell. Very interesting. Very interesting. Could you articulate, since you brought that up, Doug, uh, what those higher levels of understanding of Jesus's teachings might be? Yes, absolutely. First of all, it's that Jesus put to death the self as source of identity. And that that cross teaching that has come down that that is more um, uh, a sacrificial, uh, almost like they they had in the sacrifice of animals, uh, replacement for me type atonement uh, theory. W- what Jesus actually, when you look at Jesus through an integral lens, what Jesus was saying was that religion is dependent upon the self as the source of identity, because only I through myself can obey. Only I through myself can have that in faith, and I through the self interpret correctly and obey correctly. So it's all self as source. By putting the self to death, what Jesus was saying was, no, identity is not me, and it's it, and I can do nothing of myself. He plainly says this in the Gospel of John. I can do nothing of myself. Do not glorify me, glorify the Father, which is to say glorify spirituality itself. And so he puts that self as source to death so that you can transcend beyond the self and go into that, which, again, the Eastern religions had been investigating for some time. Right. Just as I was thinking as you were speaking, you know, that whole idea of going beyond of transcending self, which is, of course, uh, could really be said to be the essence of Buddhist thought. Yes, that, yes, yeah. yes. Very. So it's almost like um, taking the, it's the phenomenology of religion, if you will. Right? I mean, that's yes. in a sense what yes. we're talking about. We're yes. extracting it on one hand from the historical context and just getting to the juice of what these beings are saying. Yes. Yes, and that's developmental. I mean, again, as yeah. a child, you, you start in the commandment phase. You brush your teeth. You go to bed at this time. You do your homework. Okay, commandments and understanding structure and form are necessary. And that's why Paul said when he was a child, he spoke as a child. But when he when he became an adult, he put away childish things, which is to say that he saw spirituality itself as the identity and not something that you do through the self, i.e., keep commandments 
uh, dogmas, creeds, etc. And so Paul was graduating on from that which he had received in a religious context and saying that you are being raised, he uses resurrection as a, as a way of saying you're being raised in your consciousness. It's a consciousness event that you're being raised or resurrected from a self-sourced, you're being resurrected into a spirit-sourced life. And so now we have a completely different identity and different way of thinking in, in that as opposed to what had proceeded. But what had proceeded was a necessary first step. Exactly, I got it. It's just we've held on to it and we haven't yeah. given it up. Right. It's like still sucking the thumb when you're grown up. Yes. Although that that is that I would have to be careful in in in, in who I said that to. <laughs> I might I might have some resistance among those who who again because again people within religion and and I have many in my family uh, still that are very much in in what are considered fundamentalist uh, uh, churches and whatever they're great people they're fantastic people oh, yeah. but this this is just a, a consciousness issue and an evolution of consciousness issue exactly no no that that's a very important distinction and none of what we're saying has anything to do with describing bad people that's not what this conversation is at all about it's but it is understanding the level of development in consciousness on which they live and thereby interpret reality. And that happens to clash with other people's interpretations, hence we have a world of conflict. And you, just like, you know, a parent can understand the feelings and the issues of a child, but the child cannot conversely understand those of the parent. Just, it's not the case. So and we don't denigrate the child. And yeah, exactly. I, I don't say, oh, my gosh, Thank I you. can't believe I used to be five years old. I was so stupid. That's right. You, exactly. you don't, you don't do that. How could I? That's right. Exactly. <laughs> you don't do that. In fact, if anything, if we're really good students of spirituality, we're cultivating compassion for all of those that are at a level of understanding that we we say. We say. And maybe we're wrong in some other fishbowl of existence. And exactly, Mitchell, for me, and Nomi and I have had this conversation, um, the beauty of moving into this open space is I am hopeful that five years from now I will look back on where I am today and realize numerous things that I had in my consciousness at this very moment that over five years period, I've learned a better way. I've learned and matured even more. This is the whole point of the integral. It's infinite growth. You're not going to a terminal place where you draw a line and say, this is the truth and I will now defend it with this line in the sand. So not only am I encouraging other people to to um, look and think at their own uh, movement and evolution from religion into spirituality itself. But I look at myself and understand this is an always ongoing uh, state of affair for me too, and that I myself am not setting myself up that I've arrived somewhere and someone else hasn't. We're all equal in the sense that none of us will ever arrive. That's what this infinite journey is about. Beautifully put. Beautiful. You and me both. Well, all of us together, <laughs> frankly, come from that point of view, you know, and 
at the end of the day, uh, our ability to love and to have compassion and understanding for others is probably uh, one of the – that's probably what this game is largely about. At the end of the day, I think that when we meet our creator, no matter what language she speaks, we will be saying, okay, <laughs> how big is your heart and how big and deep is your soul, you know? So, know me. I would love to hear what you have to say about, uh, uh, you know, it's so interesting that today, you know, each major religion gets gets its own day to be maligned, you know? It's just the way it is if you look cyclically you know uh you know the jews were the bankers and they were destroying the planet because of x y and z you know is one narrative of course the christians were involved in the crusades and so they were you know hell and damnation from our other points of view you know while they thought they were doing god's work and now there is an entire uh, one-third of the human population that is Muslim, and they are being maligned by about 0.001% or so of some rather maniacal people who don't want to sit down and have a good conversation with us. And I would like to ask you to bring them into the room. No, I'm kidding you. I'm <laughs> I want to have a word with them. <laughs> No, you know, so here is this entire third of the human population virtually that is being maligned because of really a handful of, let's say, confused apples. Let's put it that way. And I just, could you share a little bit about what your experience is being Muslim and an integrative Muslim um, in light of today's current situation? Yes, thank you. I've been thinking about it, and... What I find uh, really helpful is uh, the idea of uh, what are people familiar with. You see, what happens is that when something becomes too familiar, it, it, it seems like truth. And we have to look at the specific ideas which are so widespread and so you know familiar and repeated to the people. Uh, it's very difficult to come out of the boundaries uh, of those uh, what is repeated. So this is what is going on on this planet, that very specific ideas have been repeated in a, in a mass uh, way, and now they are the truth. Whereas when you look at all the great... In other words, I wasn't it Orwell who said, if you repeat a lie often enough, it becomes the truth. It becomes the truth. Yeah, it's very difficult to distinguish what is perceived what is as the truth. Or what is true. But what, happened, what has happened in the 20th century is that we have had great technologies, especially information technologies, which have, uh, for good and evil, they have become uh, so powerful that they can create a reality, even if it might not be actually true. Uh, so golden rule is a very universal idea, and it is part of all great religions, right? So if somebody comes in and says, you know, he or she is following any particular religion, uh, they might be interpreting that particular religion from a particular um uh, developmental level, which to me seems to be very egocentric and very ethnocentric and very narcissistic. And that might not be the whole truth, but that's the idea which has spread. And that becomes the meaning for most people because they are listening to it all the time. So we have to distinguish between what is actually true and what has been repeated unto us. And to me, that distinction is crucial. And when you look at the great religion, 
involved with this idea that there is one thing common in all great religions, which is the nest of being and knowing. That all great religions talk about the esoteric as well as the exoteric. And the esoteric dimension is what uh, we were talking about. It contains rituals and beliefs, but they were meant to evolve consciousness. So Wilbur gives the analogy of a conveyor belt. That, you know, when you're, when you're moving, you're on a conveyor belt, and that conveyor belt leads you from egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric, and ultimately integrated. But unfortunately, if the conveyor belt doesn't seem to be moving uh, after the ethnocentric. <laughs> so, so let's we need more. I was going to say we need more oil, but we don't. <laughs> oh, that was bad, folks. That's My apologies. Bad. <laughs> Some kind of fluid. <laughs> yes. Now that's a very that's a very good point. It's as though, you know, the conveyor belt stopped. But it's almost like you know, there's this ancient Greek notion of incubation. The Greeks had a practice of going into it was a healing thing of entering the space of their dream because the dream was hallowed it was considered to be kind of a, a holy moment in a person's life daily and to incubate is to go into the deep unconscious into the deep knowing and give birth incubate and give birth to an understanding some nugget of wisdom that would emerge from a dream and you know Asclepius and there's a whole bunch of uh, mythic notions around this idea of giving birth to so you could almost think of religions as an incubator from that point of view to give rise to an ever evolving perspective because in fact to be utterly fair Religions, as I was saying before, like from the point of view of the anthropology or sociology of religion, it is a very interesting institution in our society. And it should be regarded, I think, in some ways as such, sort of like we have a body politic. You know, we have a body of religion, and it's a place where people can commune and form community, and they can be charitable, and they can take in... Uh, runaways, and they can provide food and housing and and shelter and the like uh, for people in deep need. These are all part of what I always understood as fundamentally, not fundamentalist, but fundamentally the, the essence of Judaism, the essence of Christianity, which I also see as a as a subset of Judaism, and it's not because I was born Jewish at all, I'm just looking historically, it is no, Jesus was a Jew. You know, and I always giggle about this. I do it all the time. And by the way, folks, he was a rabbi, and he probably had very dark, curly hair and Sephardic skin. You know, so that's a whole other conversation, which we can engage here if you'd like. But it's just kind of fun talking about turning over the tables. This is turning over some the tables of some entrenched ideas, Nomi, very much like you were talking about, of what's repeated a lot, like this blonde-haired, I'm uh, blonde-haired, I'm sorry, blonde-haired, blue-eyed being, because that looked like the German and the European and, and on, was not at all the cultural context in which he was said to live and thrive. He was much more African, interestingly, 
and certainly Middle Eastern, Sephardic and Smorthy. Well, that's my take on it, and until proven otherwise, you know. But just to continue this, if religion could be understood from this perspective as a very useful institution that actually gathered people together, distinct from separate, I think it could have a longer life. What I seem to think is going on now with this, uh, the interfaith movement and the interspirituality movement, with our, which our dear friend Kurt Johnson has really helped to birth in many, many ways, uh, is going beyond the box of religion altogether. It seems like that's where the finger is pointing. So, both, I'd love to hear your comments. I would I would just say to that that this is not about the deconstruction of faith communities. What this is is about the evolution of faith communities. So just as we nice. may have begun with a fundamentalist religion, moved to uh, a modern religion, and then to a postmodern religion, all of those were faith communities that evolved in three different levels of consciousness. For us at present, what we see as the future of the planet is that the evolutionary leap will be when faith communities leap out of religion itself and all you have are faith communities whose identities recognize that spirituality itself is universal to every human, and therefore there's no more boundaries. So there isn't one versus the other. We have just we've just evolved the faith community. So we are not deconstructing these faith. People say to me, "Are you saying close all the churches?" No, not at all. What I'm saying is, is can't there be something greater that we could call our faith community than a church, a synagogue, a this, a that, or a, could we not have a faith community that draws on all these spiritual teachings? without us identifying with the teacher or the teaching itself, rather the spirituality to which it points. And now we have faith communities all over the world, and as Jesus said, they can be where two or more are gathered, and they can be any day of the week. They don't have to be a particular day of the week, and they can be any location. They don't have to be a particular geographical location. And now look at how this energy begins to build. Absolutely. I'm right with it. I agree wholeheartedly. It's changing the identity. It's uh, an identity upgrade. So it goes from, you know, as we've been saying, and is uh, in organic to the Wilberian perspective and spiral dynamics, is uh, that we go from egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric to cosmocentric. And that's a conversation that we don't get to have that often you know, being here on planet Earth. But I think it's really a very, that vertical direction is of a highest, no pun intended, perspective, you know, and value to us, that we can be that aligned vertically, that we really see ourselves as part of a galactic center and and beyond. I mean, that's a level of, of fun and exploration and excitement that, you know, we don't have much time in our consciousness to, to dwell upon. Yet, but if you do, exactly, yet. But when we do, I think we're going to have a whole new level of, of humor, music, and culture. <laughs> Hallelujah. So, Nomi, please weigh in here. Yeah, I think curriculum is, is key here, because when you study the curriculum of all the great nations, you will realize that mostly it is, a, it is being, it has been conceived from a scientific level, ethnocentric 
avoid in talking about exclusively of one great religion. Uh, we can discuss them in a more holistic sense. Uh, so that to me is, is crucial. And also when, when children are taught national anthems and they repeat them over and over again, this has consequences when uh, the politicians later on make speeches and then they activate these neural networks which are dormant, but when, when you give them the right kind of stimulation, they come to the fore. And we have seen that in our own, with our own eyes, uh, the way this world is going towards, you know, militancy. And those meaning systems, which are ethnocentric, they are there, they are well-placed in the brains, and they can be activated. So that's another way of looking at uh, the ethnocentric meme on, on the planet, not just one culture. I mean, this is universal. So we have to look at the world in a, in a new way. And I think integral theory helps us see the world uh, in, in universal ways. And to me, that will be the future. And education will be informed uh, with those ideas. So I'm, I'm having that hope. Yes, exactly. I, I very much appreciate your emphasis on the subject of education as well as essentially, I'll use the word, programming. And that's what it is. And you brought up the neural pathways. And this is, uh, we deal with neuroscience on a better world all the time. And I continue to move in that direction because I see that the future of our planet is directly related to our ability to move in the direction of neuroplasticity, i.e., uh, changing the mind through changing the brain. If you change, just try to change the mind, it has to have a physiological correlate. And if you don't think of it that way, it's going to be very hard to change ideas. But when you remember that mind and brain are linked, they are not the same, consciousness is not synonymous with the brain and the nervous system, but it is an expression of, and we can, by changing, thinking that, we can make those changes, the actual changes take place. So if we have, we find out that we have an erroneous idea, but it's dominated our consciousness, for a long time, we can consciously work at uprooting it. And there are techniques, actually. There are actual techniques of releasing and clearing and letting go. And some of them have religious roots and many do not. Some of them are shamanic, which you could call pre-religion. And um, there are scientifically-based techniques being developed today based on the understanding of neuroscience and uh, human subtle energy fields. So no matter where you look, you can identify these really pretty robust methods of changing people's minds, even if they're taught the worst of ideas at a very early age, which maybe they discover later, like you discovered. We all here discovered the issues with some of the ideas with which we were raised like national anthems, you know, and then we look and say, well, you know, I always believe that my country is the best and this and that, and then we actually look at the historical record and we go, wait a minute, you know, I think I need to review this. I mean, I'm an adult now. Let's take a second look, you know. So your words, Nomi, are very important. And looking at meaning systems as you do and understanding and looking at the physiology of the meaning systems and how they get in place 
uh, need to be changed. Is uh, So I personally, I really do look at world change from this point of view. I look at it very much from a, a you could say, a psychotherapeutic and neurophysiological perspective and that we've all been programmed with certain ideas. And then if even you look at developmental psychology or spiral dynamics, there's always a correlate in the body. And I find that many people who are on a spiritual path are still in denial of the importance and the role of the body because spirit is higher in this bizarre programmed hierarchy than the body because spirit is more important than flesh. Are you with me? Yes, sure. Okay, so I'm just bringing that out as another dimension of this conversation that we are dealing with one confusion and stumbling over yet another. Almost everything we look at, we see that there are these embedded assumptions that have to be looked at in order to get to the that kernel of truth underneath it all. Comments? Yes, making the unconscious conscious. Uh, making the unconscious conscious, and which has to do uh, not with, just with cognitive, but also emotional, and also cultural, and also spiritual. So we, we have within us so all the uh, energies which are dormant, and they can be, uh, they can, un- can unfold given the right kind of stimulation. So that Absolutely. is one of the basic promises that, you know, human consciousness has. Exactly, exactly. Thank you for that. Thank you. Doug, in uh, prior conversations, I uh, remember you were bringing up an idea that I think is very, very important, which has to do with distinctions around this notion we have of possession. Could you articulate for our audience a little bit about that and its relevance to this idea of, of consciousness and integral spirituality? Yes, I, I think there's a direct uh, correlate there is I look at the history of uh, religion, for example, as the way that God is seen. And religion, to me now, as I look at it, is simply a lens through which I look in order to see spirituality itself. And in the with religion as a lens, that means that each religion is a form that's boundary-driven. In other words, there's something that differentiates this religion from this one. And in fact, when you go into Christianity, the way that you would first have two Christians engage each other who had never met before, the first question that would be asked is, what denomination are you? And the word denomination means, how are you separated out from among all the others? And so even the very word for Christian identity is a word of separation, which is to say boundary-driven. When we live in a boundary-driven world, which is to say that we attach to a specific form and everything that's in the form is okay and and all those that are out of the form are not, when I do that, then I will possess an identity. And the way I possess that identity is through self as source doing all the right things. And that way I take possession of that identity and I I then have to maintain it so that I don't fall away, so that that I remain faithful. So this is a possessing type of attitude and if we look at how that translates even today into the Middle East, uh, I will say that in the name of God, I rightfully should possess uh, this land or I rightfully should possess uh, uh, these rights or whatever. This is through a natural uh, a religion lens that these things happen. As I move from religion into spirituality itself, I move from possessing 
to stewardship. And this panel that you brought together, all these great people uh, Saturday, Mitchell, and had a fantastic panel on sacred stewardship. Uh, which was a packed house, and you had all these uh, people that had been in uh, some of your classes uh, before who came these great distances to hear this, so obviously there's a big interest in it. Uh, This sacred stewardship stands over against possessing, because I do not uh, possess spirituality itself. Uh, you, You can only possess when you're in that form attachment world. So this is another beauty of this. What I'm doing instead of I'm stewarding the spirituality I am, And so now I'm looking at everything as a spiritual gift, if you will. And so that means the planet. That means what we're doing with the resources of the planet. That means people in this world who are in poverty. That means gender reconciliation and the problems that come through social justice and injustice. All of these things are a matter of stewardship. And my personal belief is that when we look at each other, when Nomi and I see that we are family, we are one, then I'm not more concerned about whether there's poverty among people that believe like I do versus people that believe like Nomi does. I don't draw those boundaries. In other words, it doesn't matter where a child starves to death. That touches my heart, and there is no boundary in that. It doesn't matter where there's a resource being misused or what part of the planet is having environmental problems. Uh, it, it touches me because I understand this is all about stewardship. So there's a real developmental change that happens as we evolve in consciousness that moves us from this idea in our brain, going back to you, uh, grooves that are sent uh, biologically and then consciousness that develops that we're not even aware of, that we're thinking possessively, and we're now defending that which we possess. And that causes us just read Facebook, and you see all these people that get into it every day, because why? They're fighting for their possession. And so this really differentiates, this really differentiates this, this idea of possessing versus stewardship. I have nothing, I own nothing, I am everything, because I am spirituality itself, but I am a steward of that. It's everything I have in existence is a gift. That is something that when, as we, as all humans, begin to come to that consciousness, then we, we realize, hey, we're all in this together. We've got to pull together, and we've got to solve the problem. It doesn't matter who, the, who has it, where it is, or under what conditions, there aren't any boundaries there. Beautiful, beautiful. You know, it's funny. I'm just, you know, I, I'm a wordsmith. I, I love having fun with language. So, I think you've noticed. <laughs> Puns descend upon me, um, as do ironies. And uh, from that point of view, I'm listening to you speak so eloquently, Doug, about about possessiveness, and I am reminded of uh, a man who I feel has been. Uh, not fully recognized for being the great teacher that he is, is Werner Erhardt, who is the founder of EFT back in the early 1970s, which later became the forum, which then became known now as the Landmark Foundation. Uh, but it's this forum. It's this very interesting forum for discussion of uh, being, ontology, perspectives on philosophy, on ways of thinking. Really interesting stuff. And he told a story that I, I, I live with this. And I, I manifested myself as well. And uh, he was one of those influences on me. When he goes to a restaurant or out to any kind of public place, 
and he uses a public bathroom, and he finds, uh, you know, the hand towels strewn about because people were clumsy and they missed the thing and they don't have the consciousness. Blah, blah, blah. And um, so that means the next person's entering, it will be, oh, where am I? You know, and so he takes it upon himself. Hopefully nobody's looking and throws things away and cleans it up and buffs and shines and polishes, you know, to varying extents. Well, I have that same, and I did this actually before I ever met him, which I had the, the distinct honor of doing some years back, um, but when, before I heard the story, and um, in my own ways, in my own context. And I went, that's brilliant. And what he says in his description of what he do, does is, I own everything. I claim possession of everything. And I am going to take this as an extension of my home. And in that way, I will care for it in its fullest. So it's an interesting, that's the para, sort of the play in the paradox. I was. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and if, yeah. if the world shared that view of possessing. There you go. It's called enlightened possession, right? Right. If it's mine, it's yours, right? For him, possession wasn't particularistic. It was on behalf of rather than self-center. Exactly. Exactly. It was on behalf of others. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, I just wanted to share that we words are, and Nomi, you were really pointing this out before. uh, at least indirectly, that the words with which we are programmed, which then uh, we, we want to look ultimately at the nature of perception itself and how ideas get actually shaped in our brain system, which then, of course, is in our meaning system. It's like a, a two-way street. You know, we get shaped by a word and the tonality and the feeling and the impact on an emotional level with a word, and it has a certain coloration slash image. So if you look at the way the brain works, it's always processing this linear notion of a word, like in English, in sequence, a linear sequence, distinct, by the way, from the ideographic languages of the, of the, e, of the East, like Chinese or Japanese or Korean, right? Absolutely. So we're processing information differently. And, but here in the West, we get a word, and then we get an image, and we have a feeling. And those become a bundle, a meaning bundle, a form of code, if you will, that has to be deconstructed in order to be able to get free if the idea, by the way, is not a constructive, creative, and world-serving one. And it's contingent, you know, I mean, different cultures. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Recognizing the contingency of uh, what we learn and what we believe to be true. I think once we discover that contingency, we see, see that, you know, social construction is at work from the very moment we are born. Even before we go to school, we are in a particular household, and the kind of things that will be repeated to us in that household are going to pattern us in a very specific way. So later on, we will see the world through that unconscious lens. So Parenting, as well as the teaching, as well as the media, they're all very powerful institutions, and they are responsible for why the world is the way it is. So looking at all those uh, institutions which are interacting with each other, I think is, is very crucial. And language-
language exactly is sort of you could say the uh, the bricks and mortar of meaning. So I mean you know there's just that's the way and and interestingly there's a biblical uh, character to that statement isn't there Doug? N R K Halogos in the beginning yes. was the word. Absolutely, and that and that is a universal. That is a universal uh, word, which is to say uh, communication. So I see within that that the um, that the whole realm that we're in is a relational world, and and logos is relational. Spirituality itself is relational, and as Nomi is just saying here, that we learn this in our earliest relationships, which which are with our our, our parents. And uh, and so we're learning that immediately that how we relate to the world we're learning by what our parents have told us in that relationship before we even step out the door. Well, absolutely, yeah. and I think discovering new meanings and new perspectives uh, is the is the responsibility of every adult. Uh, so therefore, coming to the libraries. <laughs> <laughs> It all comes back around to the library. (laughs) No, I appreciate that. No, I think that's really true. It's uh, an institution of words, (laughs) you know, and images, right? No, it really is. It really is. You know, I just, uh, we're going to start wrapping up in a moment here. Um, We've done an extended roundtable here because I just, I'm enjoying you both so much. It's a very, it's a very rich conversation. It's yeah, very, really you. beautiful. Um, is uh, clearly we're talking about development in psychology from fetus forward, if you will. I never put it that way. Fetus yeah. forward. <laughs> you know. But um, I'm thinking about you know I say to people routinely. Um, we have to move forward in our lives, and just as we talk about consciousness development and and um, integral development, an integral part of that is brain development and nervous system development. And again, my affection for neuroscience, again, is expressed here. Um, so when I, I came to a point of understanding something more about the brain, which is just to say, when we say, let's go forward in our lives, doggone it, right. you know, what we're literally meaning is we're going from our reptilian brain and re- recapitulating ontology, if you will, to a forward part of our brain, which is the prefrontal cortex, the prefrontal lobes. And so, you know, there's that wonderful old phrase that the largest journey in the world is from the head to the heart, you know, about, what, eight, nine inches, you know. But I'm going to suggest that there's yet another big journey, which is from being dominated by the, the brainstem, our oldest brain, which gave us the ability to run <laughs> or fight, you know, but if you look at people, they're still running or fighting, yeah. you know, yeah. so what we're dealing with is a reptile dominant brain of the layers that we have, and we need to come forward, and I'm very deeply involved in uh these kinds of practices that one is, I've just got training in something called higher brain living, which is all about activation of the prefrontal cortex. Yeah, certainly prayer and meditation and all the wonderful things that have come to us from spiritual activity, we call it, is largely emotional and psychological growth at the end of the day and brain development where we start to house our temple. Oh, wow, I like that. 
You know, in a sense, that's what we're doing. We begin to house our temple. We begin to really dwell in it and inhabit it. Because right now, it's a little, a little, you know, um, empty. (laughs) (laughs) Doug, I know you're biting at the bit. What do you share, please? You uh, I, I I hope this is uh, appropriate for your show, uh, Mitchell. But but in having these discussions about the reptilian brain and the inability to move into our our neocortex and and into higher levels of consciousness, being stuck in that reptile brain. Yes. I jokingly refer to that as a reptile dysfunction. <laughs> Oh, that was good. I like that. It's totally appropriate for a better world. You know? We have to see where we really are, dog, in order to move on. Yes. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. Which means your neocortex is working to come up with a joke like that. <laughs> well, so, some would debate that. But. <laughs> some would debate, right? Yeah. Right. We're all, you know, being right. debated. No exactly. question about it. Well, listen, in closing, Nomi, would you please share a few last words with our audience? And then Doug? again, must express my thanks to you, Mitchell, and the service that you're doing for folks that any and all of us listening and those of us that are discussing, discussing, we are family, and you are, and none of us are alone. It, it may have the illusion of aloneness or whatever, but through facilities like what you're doing with A Better World, hopefully people can come to a place like this, which is to me a place of worship. Uh, when you tune into these things, when you're listening to these spiritual things, and to know that you are part of a world that may not understand it's a part of you, but every single person on this planet is making a difference, and no matter where you are in religion, outside of religion, just remember that you're a big part of everything that's going on today, that you're important to the evolution of future generations. Hallelujah. That's beautiful, Doug. Thank you so much. Doug King, Nomi Naim, I so appreciate your input today, your contributions here at A Better World as well as in the lives of Presence International and your your philosophy group over at the public library. Oh, they only knew the gems they were surrounded with. <laughs> and uh, I really appreciate your work and what you both stand for. That's the kind of thing we like to bring forward at A Better World. That's that's our game. That's our game. And we love games. Beautiful. <laughs> this is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. I really appreciate your joining us again today. Uh, remember that you can go to our website, abetterworld.tv. In fact, if each of you have a website, um, why don't you, Doug, please? Uh, we are we are presence.tv. Great. That's... And Nomi, do you know? I have a Facebook page at East West Court. East-West Quotes yes. at Facebook. 
Yes, indeed. That's beautiful. Thank you both. So uh, get our newsletter, if you don't yet, at abetterworld.tv and visit us on Facebook at A Better World Media and Mitchell J. Rabin and uh, also MitchellRabin.com where I do a lot of my work as a therapist and counselor and stress management consultant. God knows how much stress we are experiencing today across this planet or brothers and our sisters straight across the Middle East and elsewhere. It's just heartbreaking to see what's going on and we can only keep the faith and pray that uh, <clears throat> this is but a moment in time and people will see more clarity and get in touch with their hearts and not their anger. Go beyond that, transcend anger, and turn it into something really very, very constructive instead of destructive. So on that note, I want to just say thank you all for joining. Uh, Remember that this Sunday is what is said to be going to be the largest climate march of all time, maybe the largest march of all ever and it's happening in New York City and across the world so I encourage you to express yourselves in whatever way you see fit and remember to join us here at A Better World it's an archive and forward this to your friends and your family and people you think could benefit from these kinds of conversations that we have every single week so with that I close and thank you all again for joining us Here's a little Mozart, and I'll see you all next time.